Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a writer and a broadcaster, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'm your chief investigator of images. Exciting times today. I'm in the hub of the BBC in central London in in a rather noisy cafe, where of course I'm surrounded by the good and the great of BBC land, including my fabulous guest today, Robin Ince. Hello. Hello. Best known for Infinite Monkeys. I suppose Infinite Monkeys. That's what I've come straight from. I've come straight from a meeting about uh, the show we're going to do about uh, simulation and simulation theory, and now I'm crossing over to the other of the cultures but as we know there is no true division between the two cultures you've set yourself up brilliantly at the beginning of this robin we do not allow for the division between disciplines on this podcast so does brian cox have the loveliest hair i don't know if it's the loveliest and i don't know where he gets it from because of course that's what it's not always the same hair it is it's like one of those great 1970s robot movies where there is that little moment you know where someone then trips and they tear their synthetic skin it's that kind of thing so we're about to go on a big tour and uh, i don't know how many of the brian coxes we'll get through there's loads of them oh fantastic gosh it must be hard to transport them all Um. it's like a kind of benevolent version of the novel and film boys from brazil rather than the nazis creating a series of hitler clones they created a sort of happier, joyous, uh, (laughs) celebrant of cosmology, yeah. I love it. Right, well, um, (laughs) fresh from Infinite Monkey Cage, now over to Art Detective. We are here together because you confided in me on Twitter that you are an art lover but also very interested in art at the moment you're working on something yeah I'm, do- I'm doing a, a show which is currently called uh, Robinitz's Rorschach Test which is kind of originally not from an, an art perspective it was from a, a beautiful description of uh, Waiting for Godot where someone said you know if there is no specific meaning. If you go in there and think, I wonder exactly what Samuel Beckett meant, and someone described it as a Rorschach test. So, mm. And I've seen this since used as various different ideas of paintings and other pieces of artwork, which is the amount that you project onto it, the subjectivity of, you know, some plays, some pieces of art, everything is kind of done for you, and in others it is 
right, what are you going to get out of it? It's the most profound thing for me when I was 16. My whole life transformed. I was going to do history at Balliol College. And then I met this amazing literature teacher who made me read Waiting for Godot line by line for two years. And that changed my life. And Waiting for Godot is sort of the reason that I realised sometimes there isn't just one answer. There's multiple interpretations. And art, of course, is the best vehicle for that, exploring diff- what different viewers bring to mm. an image. Um, so, yeah, I'm really excited that we're able to sit and talk about someone that I have been desperate for one of the guests to suggest. One of my favourite artists, again, bit of a childhood revelation, standing in front of his painting in the Tate, Stanley Spencer. Yeah. Now, yeah. why Stanley Spencer? I think well, partly because you asked me very late last night, <laughs> I was about to go to bed, and you said, you, you don't have to be free tomorrow morning, I need to go do a podcast. So, That's and I, I was thinking about who I really... And Stanley Spencer is probably my first favourite painter. I would say sometime in my teens, you know, before that, obviously, you have favourite things as a kid, children's book illustrations, probably um, Struel Peter or Straw Peter, Shock-Headed Peter is my favourite, which involves, you know, Augustus, who would not eat his soup and therefore <laughs> died of malnutrition, and the, the boy who never looked down and fell off the end of a pier and uh, snickered snack snicker snack the long-legged red scissor man cutting off johnny sucker thumbs thumbs um, this has all made a profound inf- impact on your well, all, all of these yeah uh but this is the reason stanley spencer i'm not sure when i first came across stanley spencer i remember going to a book fair in cookham with my dad when i was probably 13 or 14 years old and we went to the little museum there which of course often has changing exhibits because they're constantly being loaned out and then i saw a film about him on the bbc starring Anton Lesser, yes. who played Stanley Spencer. And it was just... So initially, it's this fascination with someone who has a delightful idiosyncrasy and also with someone who is is not religious. Mm. I think, you know, if anyone was going to woo me to a religious perspective or a belief in a deity, it would probably be the way that Stanley Spencer deals with different Bible stories. And what I find beautiful about... So I'm t- saying a lot of things at once, <laughs> but it's... I don't know, because I'm not an art expert, and because it's something that I'm just trying to learn about. So Stanley Spencer won pretty much every provincial gallery that I've been to in the United Kingdom has a Stanley Spencer. The battle is between Lowry and Spencer. Both of them, their creativity is remarkable. And I think also, certainly with Spencer, the, I mean, Lowry becomes more beautiful the more times that you see him on walls. Yeah. And I think, like, like every painter, really, you can't understand their work by seeing pictures in a book. No. It is when you, it's like I, I went to a Turner exhibition down at the Turner Gallery in Margate recently, probably in November, and there was a sudden point where you sit opposite a painting and you just stare and you stare and you stare. And that's what, unfortunately, we don't necessarily do. We don't, you know, that we need occasionally more benches opposite certain paintings just to sit. And it becomes this, like a magic eye, but it's not the revelation of something. You just, there, there was a point that I was looking at one of the images of, I think it was of Margate, actually, the, the, the coast of Margate, which of course Turner loved. And you just stare at the way that he's created that light. And it is an act of shamanism. That, to me, is what what great art is. Well, it's also a mirror as well, isn't it? It's a mirror back on you and what you're thinking, contemplating at any one time. I think what's interesting, you you mentioned Larry as well, but Spencer, he's an English painter and an Englishness. As a, as a concept, comes through, I think, quite strongly in what he does because he's just so rooted to Cookham, isn't he? He is. Mm. He his life is very bizarre. <laughs> I think idiosyncratic is perfect because the, this idea, even when he was at the Slade, he was called Cookham because he stopped 
you know, he'd stop his day and get back in to Cookham from London in time for tea because he had to get mm. home every day. He's this strange boy, I think. Well, there's a beautiful... Um, I found a line... When I was going around, they had an exhibition of his work at the Hepworth uh, mm. in Wakefield, and when I was on tour, it was like that thing where I have to find time. It was like two days left the exhibition. I have to go and see... Any time that I would see any exhibition which has a lot of his work. And there was a lovely quote uh, under... I can't remember which painting it was, where I like my life so much that I want to fill every empty space on a wall with it. And that is like, if you've ever... You probably know The Horse's Mouth, the Joyce Carey novel adapted by Alec Guinness for the screen. And there's that beautiful thing with Gully Jimpson, the painter, every time he sees the right kind of wall, he goes, I have to fill it. Yeah. And there's a beautiful thing because one of them is, he does this, he, he finds a wall, uh, some rich people leave their house and he, they don't realise he's still in there. And so he destroys their house, paints, he keeps looking at people's feet. He's desperate, he sees a waiter and he thinks, I want to see your feet. And he fills the wall eventually with this incredible collection of feet. And then there's a beautiful moment where, as he looks at his achievement, for a second he is filled with joy. And then he turns and he leans on the door and he says, why doesn't it look like it does in here? And taps oh. his head. Now, the feet thing is just a delightful, because those were actually done by the, the artist John Bratby. But the feet thing is delightful because one of my favourite paintings now of Sandy Spencer's is The Last Supper, yes. where you can see all, all the disciples' the feet. feet. Absolutely. I mean... I just think that quote is beautiful and it really sums him up. It's this frustrated lover, just love. It's just he's he knows what, what love should be like and he knows what beauty should be like and his life and his art are all this sort of attempt to capture it, seal it, package it, and then is ultimately frustrated. And actually that that we should mention the painting we're actually gonna look at. Um, because you mentioned the Hepworth and this is um uh, this is in Coventry, it's in the Herbert, in the, the Herbert, one that, which is... is um, which you also saw when you were out. Yeah, and this is one thing that I would really say, I'm sure the people who listen to this do it anyway, but however marginal you might imagine a, you know, provincial art gallery is going to be, I've never been to one and not, after maybe three rooms sometimes are going, oh, it's all right, it's all right. Or sometimes you go to one where rather than celebrate the things that are around them, they've just managed to get enough money to get the worst work of great yeah, people. Exactly. So they've got, they've got a Picasso or whatever. But every single time you see something that is beautiful, and the Herbert has a, has a lovely collection of stuff. It's just in the middle of Coventry, which of course is such a, you know, as a huge fan of the band The Specials, and of course, you know, Ghost Town is one of the greatest yeah. singles of all time. So you walk through the concrete there, and then you go into the Herbert, and I was wandering around, and there were just nice little things, and like a lot of provincial museums, it also has a bit of local taxidermy and stuff <laughs> like that. And then in the corner of one room, shortly after the Lowry, mm was this one which is, uh, I hope I pronounced it right, Miss Ashwanden, who, um, as far as it says on her, but anyway, was the final painting that Stanley Spencer ever uh, um, finished. And it's just this very simple painting of a young girl, in about 19 years old, I think she was, um, in, in just in her jumper, with Cookham in the background, and her parents asked Stanley Spencer to make her because she was dying. Yeah. And Stanley Spencer was also dying. And you, from the moment you look at it, before you read the story, there's something that you... I mean, that's, that's the problem, isn't it, with explaining art, yeah. is really the only explanation you want to say is, look, yes, look at it. But you, you see something, you know, of course, in the eyes and in the, and you think, why why this particular person? And then, you, re you know, two people dying are looking at each other. Yeah. And and I kept going back to it. I, I, 
every, I'd go into another gallery and I'd think, I must go and have a look at that painting again. And I find that with Stanley Spencer anyway, but there is something about that, you know, the sense of, of joy and life and mortality that is in a lot of his works. And then the fact that this is the final point of an inescapable mortality. Mm. Now, of course, his, his, his religious beliefs, I'm not entirely sure where he saw his destiny or whether he believed that cooking was heaven on earth. Of course, there are times where, you he know... He does call it heaven mm. in a village, doesn't he? I mean, I, I think it was such a good choice when I asked you to pick a painting and because, because it's not a big hit. Um, in fact, we, you know, we were saying he, this painting doesn't appear in the major catalogues, doesn't mm. appear. It's even hard to find information about it online. But it's so intimate and to me it's so perfectly Spencer because one of the things he does, of course... He he does say Cookham is, is Heaven's Village, but he creates biblical characters um, that connect with the characters in his village, in mm. his life. And he's so tied to this place from childhood. Well, that's the beautiful thing. When, when, when you hear people who, not many of them, are, of course, alive now, uh, but, um, well, a few of them are still around, but when you hear them talking about all the different faces that appear in paintings that are the faces of the people that he would see. And, and you know, when you look at things like, you know, that, that beautiful, the resurrection at Cookham. That's the one that got me as a child. Yeah. I remember standing in front of that aged seven, eight, and being utterly obsessed and taken in by it. And I think, I mean, again, you know, religion's sort of on the periphery of this discussion, isn't it? Because he was a Christian, but a really very unconventional one. And when he creates that scene, resurrection at Cookham, which is, is so bizarre, it's all the people he knew but in an S, to me, as a medievalist, it's got that medieval quality of um, memento mori, this idea that you constantly remember death. And, and he is one of these people, you know, having been at war, um, really seen death. Well, and that's the incredible thing, isn't it? He yeah. talks about coming back to Cookham after the Slade, I think, yeah. and, and saying, you know, that, that here was this, he was back in this idyll, and then, of course, the interruption of war. And yet, that's what, another thing that I find fascinating is having been there and then of course done that incredible work at the Sander Memorial Chapel yes. um, Huge but he doesn't become bleak and no. I think part of it I, I don't know but there's something about there's a few religious people I know Dean's uh, um, Vic Stock who was the former Dean of Guildford Cathedral there's something that I really like about his and he's been on Monkey Cage a few times his his Christianity his religion is is not really it's, it's just you know we're here now and we need to try and, and and do decent things not necessarily for any reason of of some greater good but and what comes across to me what i see from saying it is this sense of joy this sense of kindness not this sense of the mystery because that's what he's brilliant at doing isn't he is he he makes the mundane epic exactly. and then he makes the epic mundane exactly and that's what i think is i mean i, I find and now when you look at it and because you see the influence i mean there's two people in particular, I think Lucian Freud, oh, you know, yeah, the exactly. fleshiness, that, that, what's it, uh, not, uh, the, the le leg of mutton. Leg of mutton, which yeah. is his second wife, yeah, uh, that, that is so Freud. Disastrous marriage. Of awful marriage, <laughs> awful marriage, but brilliant art. Yeah, and <laughs> um, the, the way that, you know, the way that the, the, the breasts hang, yeah. the way that, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of, you know, he's cocking it and all of those things. And then the, and, and but you that. know he got in a lot of trouble for obscenity. He yeah. nearly got um, arrested. You know, he nearly got um, set to prison for obscenity in art. Because, but you're so right. He's turning the mundane into something sacred. Um, and likewise, you know, when he does angels, so in some of his religious paintings, you've got these big.
big, lumpy angels that just don't look like they can fly because they're all hips and bum and legs. Yeah. <laughs> but they are being um, turned into something sacred through their sort of their, their lack of beauty. Well, it's like the Beryl Cook, Beryl Cook stuff, who I imagine she was enormously influenced by Stone Spencer. I don't know. I've got some Beryl Cook stuff, and I, I love what she did mm. because, again, you know, with Plymouth, what she's doing is she's creating a celebration of of now yep. of making these people have a point making people you know because of course now we currently live in a, a tremendously fractured nation and I think that's interesting when you mention the Englishness because the Englishness of Stanley Spencer is I think how we like to think of England it's about a, it's a the joy and the sense of humour it does exist yep. Yep. but it is not you know, as you said, the, the fact that some of his paintings were banned, some of them were not taken. You know, his painting of, of, of St. Francis and the Birds, which is, is probably one of his most, I would have thought, probably one of his most famous. Yeah, I, that, that was one again. I had it by my bed mm. growing up. I just thought it was, it's so um, earthy and, and, and there's, a, there's a depth and heaviness to his figures, but also sort of a comedic element. You know, you're mentioning mm. there sort of lightheartedness and, and there's a humour, isn't there? Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, that's why the, the other person that I mentioned that I would have, have talked about, but it's not a painting, is the person who is, I think, giving me the most just, you know, Damascene moment of joy in art in the last few months was going to the Rauschenberg exhibition. Because, again, what he... There's that beautiful bit where... I can't remember where he said it. It's not, it wasn't at the exhibition. I think it was in, in, in uh, an, an interview with Charlie Rose, possibly, mm. where he talked about Jasper Johns and him saying, uh, we wanted our art to come from joy. Yeah. And so you go round an exhibition when you're going around I went around twice around the Tate Modern exhibition and people were smiling people you know in the Hockney people are enjoying the Hockney at the Tate Britain yeah. but I didn't see them all smiling when you look at what and again Rauschenberg if you look up because I spoke to some people who went oh I don't really like his work I said have you ever actually seen it they said no I've only seen it in books go, well it doesn't work in books no. of course it doesn't you need to see it on the wall in the same way when I went around the Hepworth and looking at the Stanley Spencer's images of, of, of the dock workers on the, on the Clyde yeah. and the shipbuilding on the Clyde um, it's a little bit like if you know Ron Muek's uh, stuff 
And you know that if you look at it for long enough, because it does look so real and fleshy, it starts to move. Yes. And it's, I think because your, your mind is going, that is meant to be breathing. So we're going to just put that detail in. Fantastic, yeah. And when you look at this, I'd never seen until the Hepworth exhibition just the enormity mm. of those, those images from the Clyde. And they start moving. Yeah. And you can start well, to smell them. That's what always used to happen to me with Resurrection at Cookham is I felt those people coming out of the grounds and, and I felt they were very real. But there's one of the descriptions of, of that painting when it was exhibited, they said it's like a pre-Raphaelite has shaken hands with a cubist, which I love because that's the other thing. It's like reality and unreality in one. And actually, that's one of the things that comes through in this painting that we're looking at because... There are definitely essences of Lucian Freud here, the sort of the pastiness, the thick application of paint to make the skin. But she she looks both both real and yet very, very much painted. This is a mm. representation of a person. And I, I suppose, again, being medievalist, I think what Sp um, Spencer does a lot in his paintings is he's not trying to represent reality. He's trying to make almost symbols of reality, representations of it that mm. have been filtered through paint, through a canvas. And that's what really comes across with me with this one. I mean, it's, it's sad, isn't it? I mean, how does, it, does it make you feel sad or does it make you feel hopeful, this? What do you think? It's really hard, isn't it? Because the, also the shape, mm. the, 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 the shape that she has is not necessarily a shape. It, it, I think that's what I, I like about him, which is another of the things, which is to not gloss over you know, the way that we are. Imperfections, yeah. exactly. And, and well, it's very hard when you look yeah. at her face. You can almost see it's, it's very serious, of course. And she looks so, she looks so old considering she's actually a, a, a teenager. Yeah. And you wonder what she knew, what she knew about how long she had left yeah. and what Spencer knew and what the, you think about what the parents hoped in terms of, I mean, I wonder why, if that's not in the book, because it's owned, I don't know, no, I think it must be owned by the, by the Herbert the now, Herbert. Or, or might be the lead city, I can't remember now, but it's, um, I mean, what, yeah, what did, the they, idea, what why did, did they, they commission want it? captured? Yeah. And what did they think, you know, Stanley Spencer, of course, it turns out he is the local painter, mm -hmm. and by that point, of course, a celebrated painter, you know, to, towards the end of his life. What did they want captured there? And what is captured there? As you said, even the skin tone, the skin mm -hmm. tone has this strange mix of, a, a, a reality, but also then an exaggerated reality. Well, it's so almost morbid, isn't it? Because yeah. of the pastiness and the use of blue. I mean, there's a lot of blue-white that, that he's used in the in the skin, which I think gives it a luminescence that that is, it, you know, it, it hints at death. Uh, he does that a lot in, in his figures, you know, that, that you've got these very robust, very um, lively, lifelike characters that are always round and pink. And then you've got this sort of suggestion of... of the body after death, which is much more a bit like leg and muffin, that sort of pastiness mm. of it all. Um, but I think that um, what's striking about this is it is a celebration of this person now, but it's almost timeless because I think all the way through his work, while he is incredibly joyous, he's never really taken his eye off mortality. He loses his brother but in the it war. It is those eyes, isn't it? It is. It's, it is. It's, They're timeless. That, that painting, the two things which are, of course, cook and behind there. Yep. The 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 sofa the, yep. the the pattern of the sofa and then the two things the more you look at it the more you see those eyes and you wonder what the eyes see and then the smallness of the hands exactly. the smallness of the hands held so tightly together that yeah. because of course she's still a teenager and she's been asked to sit for a painter an old man painter yeah. you know who he himself as we're saying you know old and ill yeah. that wonderful final portrait that he did of himself which I, I presume was oh, not long like, before this no it was just before it was just before and um, that the, the two self-portraits are I think 
two of the most powerful self-portraits in the history of art. When he does the youthful one, which is so, uh, he looks so severe, but he's used shadowing so beautifully. Um, and it's a life-size and a half, so it's bigger than life-size. And then he does that, that wonderful reply to that in his last year of life, which is literally just before this. Um, and again, he looks so defiant and strong, but at the same time, there's a fragility and age yeah, yeah, to yeah. him. It's, he captures it like nobody else, you know? The idea of being both powerful and strong and weak at the same time. Well, that's what He's I love about all amazing. the images of himself as well. Like that, that one, another one with him with Patricia Priest, it's not the one with uh, um, the a leg of mutton, it's the one with his head popping mm. up like a bird. Mm. And, He's and, you, and you kind that, of, yeah. even before you know the background story of the fear involved and the domination that she had, and certainly in the, in the exhibition at Hepworth, they kind of highlighted the. We should probably the explain to the architect well, a bit he, about he, his what life. What he yeah. hoped was, he, uh, he, he, loved, he ended up loving two people. And there was his wife, Hilda, um, who he continued to, to love after. She died in 1950, I think it she was. She did of cancer as well. Um, and and she, they had children together, two children together. And there's some beautiful pictures of the, There's a lovely family picture of Hilda and his daughter and some dolls. Yeah. And I can't remember what it's, it's called now. That's a very sad story, actually. That's when he went to try and reconcile with her and she wasn't having it. And, and there's this tragedy of the sort of the finiteness of their relationship in that painting. It's called Hilda and the Dolls, I think. That's right. You, yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. And it's a really sad painting. But, uh, but yeah, so he loved her, continued to love her, but he'd fallen head over heels with this Patricia lady. Priest, who, as far as we know, as I think there was physically, um, despite what you might imagine from the paintings, there, there was mm -mm. no community. And, and she, she, she to wasn't... I, I, I mean, she, she lived with another woman and she I don't was, think yeah. had any... I, I, I don't imagine have the desire. As, as far as I, again, I'm saying this merely from. It's all. I, I hate ever saying that. Nothing. It, it may well be entirely untrue, but it, it, it seemed that her joy was in the domination of yeah. him, not in the joy of being with him, and in, in the fact that when you look at all those paintings, she is so dominant. Yeah, and she the, is. I mean, he was absolutely infatuated and obsessed with her, but she was a lesbian and yeah. in a long-term lesbian relationship. But he took her away to Switzerland, he painted her repeatedly. And in the end, she got everything from him. He signed over the house mm. to her, he took loads of, you know, she took control of his finances. And you're right, I mean, there's this dominance about what she actually did in his life. It's a horrible film noir in Cookham, isn't it, basically? It you know, really You don't think is. of Cookham as being the film noir where, <laughs> you know, Patricia Priest will be played uh, by Barbara Stanwyck in this particular uh, version of the life. There is actually a film version of all of this, because it is, it's so dramatic. So that, not the, is there another one apart from the Anton yeah, Lesser one? Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. Because the Anton Lesser one I must get hold of. There's still a lovely really arena good. documentary um, of, uh, which has lots of the, the locals of Cookham, because it was made in the 1980s, talking about when they were painted and when they went round and went, oh, that's me in there and blah, blah, blah. Well, this blah, is the funny thing about what we're talking about with this and this painting, really, because he's at the end of his life. He has gone back to Cookham. He's had, like, two, he's, <laughs> he does something that I think all men should do for their wives, which is declare chapels of love to their wives. <laughs> so he has four women essentially in his life that he loves and he, he creates or conceives of these painted chapels for three of them <laughs> which is pretty awesome but he um, he's by the, by the 50s but he dies in 59 
by the late 50s, he's he's quite lonely, he's quite isolated, he's back in Cookham, but he's seen as a sort of local oddbod. So mm. he pushes a black pram around everywhere with a canvas in it. Um, and, and you could just imagine how he must have been perceived. And then to be invited in with this young girl, this teenager, and, and to have this, this moment of painting when they both know ultimately that they're dying, mm. I, I find that just such a bizarrely uh, appropriate end to a life. Well, there was real fondness for him in Cookham. Very though. fond, So, you know, yeah. even though he, he, was, he was the acceptable face of eccentricity, but again, as we yes. said, with that Englishness thing, it's important to remember that many people reacted very badly to his paintings, Absolutely. that actually what we now see as such joyous celebrations of ideas of Bible yeah. Stories were seen as as close to, to blasphemy because Sacrilege, they were, yeah. yeah and then and then all the bodies and and the very very overt sexuality of a lot of his paintings some of them weren't even released he did a bunch of pencil sketches that were confiscated before they went to an anonymous patron because they were just too sexual mm. too erotic I mean now I suppose we, bat, we don't bat an eyelid at, at certain. Mm images but at that time in the, in the post-war era that was dodgy stuff to that's be that's the important thing isn't it but as you know as an art historian and I'm only just finding out now which is so many people that we now just take as you know the kind of things that are placed on table mats that you can <laughs> buy in in, uh, in some kind of museum shop that at the time you know the outrage over oh, Turner the outrage that could could go with, with, with Spencer that, and, and once it's framed in its times oh, you yeah. really because I what I think I love about him and I still haven't worked it out and I probably never will because I also love the landscapes as well I I think the way he captures landscape, there is something about the way that he creates the shape of brick and thatch, and so the, right. the way the helter skelter that I he think gets to the quite Graves Gallery. Claustrophobic in quite a lot of his landscapes, and I love that the idea of a claustrophobic landscape. Mm. A landscape supposed to be all open and sweeping, but he somehow frames his landscapes so you kind of feel like, oh, I'm, I'm squeezing out of this, I can't take it. Yeah. But yeah, his landscapes are amazing. But again, you know, radical use of colour, radical use of paint, um, mixing up all these different styles, nodding to the pre-Raphaelite in his symbolism, nodding to the cubist, looking a bit Lucian Freud. There's all these mixed mixed dimensions and yet you always know a Spencer mm. you can always tell a Spencer so and it's three different styles isn't it really there's three they, they seem they could be they're wonderful I, but I, I think I was trying to work out on the way here what it is and I think one of it is as someone who probably is prone towards uh, pessimism Pessimism, oh. and then sometimes with a level of, of misanthropy as well. What I, I get when I go, you. but that's the thing is, but I have aspirations for optimism. Yeah, and <laughs> and I think that's what you get when you go round yeah. an exhibition of his art, or when you suddenly come across one of his paintings, um, um, you know, with a, a Wyndham Lewis near it and whatever else. Is there is an optimism despite what he saw, what he experienced, both. You know, the First World War, the, 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 the trouble of, 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 of love and romance, the loss of, of a wife that he himself had, you know, created in the hope that he'd create this utopian love idol, exactly. which of course couldn't was impossible. But you know, this goes back, we were having a conversation before we started rolling Art Detective Listeners about, about the current political situation and why, why Britain is doing what it's doing in Europe at the moment. And, um, and that idea, I think, of, of the sort of the frustrated older man that you see in his self-portrait He's both powerful and strong, 
slightly prone, like you say, to, to pessimism and to, 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 be, to being affected by life, having mm. life kick you in the balls, if you like, and yet still being in search of something idyllic, something beautiful, something perfect. All of that comes through to me in that last painting of himself. Mm. And actually, it comes through to me in this, because even the way he's put Cookham in the background, mm. there is this sort of yearning for permanence, for a permanence that is the English landscape, as far as he's concerned, and not even just the landscape, the village. The idea of English the, the, community, the chopping you know. of her hair as well, the way that it's cut, the the, uh, the un unruliness yeah. of, of of the fringe. Yeah. Um, or yeah, it's just a. But she's slump, another building, slump, isn't she? She's yeah. like part of Cookham. Um, the person has become the framework, and I mean, I live in a a little Cotswold village, and actually, when you look at those ancient village buildings that have been there for you know, hundreds and hundreds mm. of years you get that sense of connecting with the people that have been in that place oh psychogeography is a great game isn't yeah, it yeah but i think there's a bit of psychogeography going on here oh no loads of it totally so, isn't isn't he populating his own you know all of those people they but, they know that they exist in someone's you know that the idea that she over 50 years on it would have probably meant nothing when you are facing you know brutality of dying so young yeah. But there is something for those left behind that goes, she won't be forgotten, mm. and there'll be people wandering around some gallery, and yeah. there they are. And they're, you know, we're always looking for meaning and all of those kind of confusions. But I, I think there is just, there, there is something that he's caught in, in her, which you only really, in fact, perhaps even more so in the images that he caught for himself. And I think mm. that's, it's a very rare Spencer in the specific kind of. of humanity he's got on that canvas and you know why I love this as well it's the there is an attempt here to depict innocence because she is so young and so untouched um, and I think that's why the pinkness of her jumper the purity of putting her in a pink jumper just just there she has done no wrong she's mm. too young to have sinned she, you know she's she hasn't got the scars of life yeah. that his self-portrait shows um, and that's why it's it's so hopeful it's almost angelic although it's a it's a portrait of a real person mm. um, so it's that time slip thing again I mean I get it a lot being a medievalist when I go into old churches but churches where you see memorials plaques that go back hundreds of years and you feel like those people have become part of the fabric of the village they've gone on and they've become stones if you like within the church I really feel like that's what he's doing here he's preserving her memory for a long time by by painting her and and immortalizing her um, it's a brilliant choice I'm so so pleased we've been oh, able I'm to glad you explained it. more yeah because I never really understand you just see something, don't you? And then you try and sometimes work out backwards. What well, I mean, this one, I suppose, is quite overt in, in what it has to say. But you you were taken by it when you saw it. And I just thought it was it was it. yeah it was uh, um, it was the great moment of finding yet another provincial gallery with something remarkable in it. And that's a good point. Always go to your provincial mm. galleries. I have been surprised again and again by the little secret gems that are hidden in them. Um, Robin, it's been Thank such you. a pleasure. For having um, me on. You are on Twitter, aren't you? What's yeah, your Twitter at handle? Robin Ince. Yeah. At Robin Ince. And I will. In fact, it's interesting because some of the things we're talking about. The reason that I'm doing a show about art in Edinburgh. Um, is because I thought a lot of my shows are kind of ridiculous, angry, jumping around, <laughs> cartoonist, you know, rage of, uh, of, of the liberal elite. And I thought I want to do a show that is just celebrating the kind of joy of art. Uh, because I think we're becoming a very lost 
generation in well, that, some ways. That is the reason for this podcast. I believe that art can bring us joy and emotions. Uh, so you're the perfect guest. Thank you very um, much. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe by going to historyhit.com slash artdetective. I'm on Twitter as Dr. Yanina Ramirez. Loads more amazing podcasts to come. But for now, Robin Ince, super guest. Thank you so much. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you.